Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. I'm Christine Fink, and I'm going to do my best to stand in for our physician-in-chief today. Just a couple of announcements. I just want to remind everybody that the flu clinics are open. They do end today at 10 Columbus, um, but look on the internet, and you can see where you can get your flu shot. And remember, all of our vaccination stuff is due to be uploaded by October 7th. With that said, I am happy to announce uh, Dr. Hughes will be presenting today on adolescent breast care and pediatric plastic surgery. Uh, Dr. Hughes comes to us from a craniofacial fellowship in Harvard, but as you know, he was a general surgery resident here at UConn. He has done an amazing job in filling in some of the important things that we were missing in plastic surgery. He's done a, a fantastic job with our lymphovascular malformations clinic. His uh, expertise has been fantastic after um, coming to our obesity and helping our obesity patients and has done a, a great job taking care of that patient population. And I also know that he's been somebody that um, the general surgery team looks to for some of our complicated wounds. With that said, he's also an incredible person, incredibly kind, and we are so lucky to have him on our staff. Without much else to say, here is Dr. Hughes. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Fink. Thanks, everybody, for having uh, me here today to represent our group. And I'll be talking about adolescent breast care and how it relates to pediatric plastic surgery. And uh, I just want to say that I represent a team of us in uh, 2L in the main campus. Um, and this is uh, some representative examples of what we can do and how we can interface with pediatricians and primary care providers to help this patient population. I have no financial conflicts of interest to disclose, unfortunately, but I'll talk about uh, a few things with pediatric plastic surgery and adolescent breast care. I'm going to focus specifically on symptomatic macromastia, congenital asymmetry, uh, gynecomastia, and uh, I want to talk at the end about gender dysphoria and specifically chest dysphoria in this adolescent population. I will say I have uh, lots of pictures here uh, in this presentation. All of the patients have given consent, and these are not necessarily our best outcomes, but I think they're representative of what we can do and how we can help this patient population. So I'll start with uh, symptomatic macromastia, which is a debilitating condition that affects both adolescents and adults and it generates uh, enormous amounts of back, neck, and shoulder pain. Uh, can be characterized by frequent rashes underneath the breasts and skin breakdown. A lot of young girls come to us complaining of difficulty finding clothing that fits. A lot of them have to pay lots of money to get specially fit bras. Apparently you have to go to Rhode Island to get some of these specially fit bras. And it also generates an enormous amount of psychosocial distress and emotional distress. We see a lot of activity avoidance and social contact avoidance in this specific patient population. These are two representative examples of a typical patient that we'll see in our adolescent breast clinic. Both of them are about 17, 18 years old, and they have sort of the characteristic findings that you see with symptomatic macromastia. They have large, dense, pendulous breasts on both sides. At the top part of the breast, there's deflation, and at the bottom part of the breast is where most of the volume goes, and that's because the breast parenchyma stretches the ligaments and all the volume goes uh, inferiorly. And so the combination of a large volume and a dependent breast creates a lot of the pull on the shoulders, a lot of the pull on the neck and the back, and creates a lot of the symptoms that people come to us complaining about. The impact of symptomatic macromastia on the adolescent population specifically has only recently started to be studied. Um, we know a lot about symptomatic macromastia in the adult population, but we're just starting to learn about how it specifically affects teenagers. And this is a uh, review article from a group in Boston over a couple of years ago that looked at the impact of macromastia specifically on this patient population. And they did a retrospective review of their patients, and they found that across the board, compared to non-macromastic controls, adolescents with large and symptomatic breasts had lower health-related quality of life, lower overall self-esteem, they had more breast symptoms, obviously, and they had a higher risk of disordered eating uh, practices. And it should be said that there is some correlation between macromastia and BMI, but what they found was that these symptoms, especially the self-esteem and the psychosocial symptoms, were independent of uh, BMI. 
And the treatment for symptomatic macromastia can be uh, several fold. We initially start with non-surgical treatment. Uh, we usually have the teenagers do a round of physical therapy to make sure that there's no other symptoms contributing to uh, their, um, their complaints. And if non-surgical treatment fails, the, the mainstay is something called reduction mammoplasty or a, a breast reduction. It's among the most common surgical procedures that plastic surgeons perform across the board. And it does improve the symptomatic complaints of musculoskeletal pain, and it improves the physical and psychosocial well-being. Now, across the board for plastic surgeons, most women are between 40 and 60 years old that get breast reductions. But interestingly, almost 80% of them have been symptomatic since adolescence. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to address the problem uh, before it becomes debilitating. The traditional dogma that we fight against frequently, especially with certain third-party payers, is that adolescents should wait until they're adults to undergo breast reduction. That's sort of been the typical thing that a lot of patients have been told as they've been growing up and battling a lot of these symptoms that they have to wait until they're adults to get a breast reduction, which I'll show you is not true. Some people believe that operating on teenagers at this stage risks regrowth of breast tissue, and so they tell them to wait until they're adults. And a lot of people argue that teenagers are ill-equipped to deal with the post-operative complications and what it means to change their body habitus uh, during their developmental years. But what we've seen as people have looked at this more and more is that surgical intervention, especially in the teenage years, can positively impact quality of life in adolescents with symptomatic macromastia. This is again a group in Boston <clears throat> and our PA in plastic surgery, Lauren, uh, worked with this group and worked on a lot of these papers to really uh, define the field and demonstrate that intervening at certain stages can improve quality of life dramatically. And in this particular study across the board, they found that improvements in physical and psychosocial well-being happen as soon as six months after breast reduction. And actually anecdotally, we see it as soon as the recovery room in after uh, certain cases. And that interestingly, the effects persist five years postoperatively, and sometimes they're even better than their non-macromastic controls. So really, we have a, a huge power of intervention here to be able to address some of the quality of life issues that uh, affect the patients within this group. Again, interestingly, it was independent of BMI or age and intervention, suggesting that neither of these characteristics, whether they're high BMI or whether they're young age, should necessarily be a strict contraindication to surgical intervention. So these are just some of our pre and post ops for the pictures I showed before the top picture on the right is one month post op and the bottom picture on the right is a year post operatively you see a lot of changes happening in the breasts over time. But overall she had experienced a complete relief of her neck back shoulder symptoms and is very happy. And this is one of our larger reductions here, some of the scale is skewed because the pictures are further in and, and closer up, but if you look at the folds of her. Um, her uh, elbow there, you see that the breasts are remarkably smaller and lifted and helps to reduce all of her symptoms. Next, I'll talk about uh, breast asymmetry or congenital breast asymmetry, which basically refers to differences between the two sides in size and shape and position. Uh, there's a, a dogma in plastic surgery, this one's actually true, that uh, they're not twins, they're sisters, and that's, that's very similar to what we see often. Most people have uh, some degree of asymmetry um, in their chest, actually everyone, uh, but when it becomes dramatic and substantial, it can significantly affect uh, an adolescent's psychosocial well-being, their emotional self-esteem, and can negatively impact their quality of life. This is a representative example of somebody that we see in our clinic. She's 17 years old and came to us with congenital breast asymmetry, um, which is remarkably uh, different between the two sides. Specifically with her, there's a lot of minutia here, but she has something called a tuberous breast deformity on the left-hand side, which is where the breast is constricted. And so uh, some of the reconstructive efforts that we do have to address a lot of the uh, components of congenital breast asymmetry. Traditional dogma within this patient population is that uh, differences between the two sides is mostly a cosmetic concern and therefore should not be addressed, especially in the teenage years and should not be covered by insurance. Again, the traditional uh, thought process similar to symptomatic macromastia is that teenagers uh, undergoing operations are both ill-equipped to handle the complications and that they risk regrowth afterwards, which we've seen is not true. In fact, not every teenager needs an operation for congenital breast asymmetry, and there are certain indications not to operate initially if they're still actively developing, if their breast growth is still in an active phase. 
And so what we've done here at Connecticut Children's is partnered with a prosthetic and orthotic company. This one is in Glastonbury to provide custom made inserts for bras to help mask some of this congenital asymmetry uh, during the years of rapid development and before patients are good candidates for surgical intervention to be able to address some of the quality of life issues that, that occur with congenital asymmetry. But when they are candidates for surgical intervention, when breast development is stable, when psychosocial development has um, developed to the extent that they are ready for surgery, then surgical intervention, again, can be impactful and can significantly improve quality of life in this adolescent population. There's a uh, theme here, and it's going to be very similar, that surgical intervention can produce sustained improvements in this particular asymmetric population, independent of the age at which they uh, are operated upon and independent of the degree of severity of their asymmetry. So just the fact that there is some asymmetry there that is uh, bothering them or is impactful for their daily life in surgical intervention in certain cases can be beneficial. Surgical approaches vary depending on the specific anatomic considerations. Uh, often something as straightforward as an augmentation mammoplasty where you put certain implants in. These are done again for reconstructive uh, efforts and not cosmetic efforts. So um, typically the FDA restricts silicone implantation to patients under 22 for cosmetic concerns. But for teenagers with severe congenital asymmetry, there is an allowance for silicone augmentation in the teenage population. If there's differences in size and what's called ptosis or droop of the breast, then mastopexy alone might be an, an option, which is just a breast lift. And if there are different sizes and one side needs to be reduced, then you can also employ breast reduction techniques as well. It really depends on the specific uh, concerns and anatomic findings of each patient. And this is our ASIM patient here in her initial photograph when she came to us on the left, three months postoperatively on the top, and then one year after surgery on the bottom. Again, not, not perfect, but uh, dramatically improved from preoperatively, and her quality of life uh, has dramatically improved. Uh, I will say it's this patient population is very rewarding to work with, uh, and often the parents come with them to the office, and right away they just uh, talk about not so much how they look, and the girls themselves don't talk so much about how they look, but uh, the parents especially talk about what uh, different people they are and how much more outgoing they are and how they feel like they're not hiding behind their clothing and, and withdrawing. And you see that right away, and it really does persist at least uh, several years after surgery, which is a rewarding thing to see as a practitioner. Third, I'll talk about gynecomastia, uh, which is another common thing we see in our adolescent breast clinic. Um, technically, gynecomastia is the benign enlargement of male breast tissue, and it's extremely common. We see a lot of kids that come in who are really worried, think that there's something terribly wrong, and most of the time there's not. It's an extremely common condition. Up to two-thirds of patients of, of uh, teenage boys will experience some degree of gynecomastia in their lifetime. Most of it resolves by age 17. Uh, sometimes it can persist uh, beyond that, and when it lasts longer than a year or so, or if it persists longer than 17, the chances that it's going to spontaneously regress are smaller, and so typically that's when we come in. The etiology of gynecomastia is mostly idiopathic. There are certain conditions that can cause gynecomastia, certain drugs certain endocrine disorders, uh, and we do a thorough workup of all of our patients to make sure that uh, none of these factors are contributing to the development of gynecomastia. It does range in severity. Um, this is a one of, there's lots of grading scales out there. This is one of the more common grading scales that was developed in the early 2000s. <clears throat> uh, grade one through four, essentially the takeaways are that one is less severe, four is the most severe, and it's essentially dependent on the degree of hypertrophy of the glandular tissue with or without skin excess. So a small amount of hypertrophy with no skin excess is a one, a large amount of hypertrophy with lots of skin excess, almost a female looking chest is a grade four. And anywhere in between can still be uh, significantly impactful for certain patients. This is just a representative example of someone on the more minor scale, which again, you look at this particular individual and you might not appreciate the degree of impact that this has on their quality of life, but this is sort of a grade one-ish gynecomastia with glandular hypertrophy mostly behind the nipple, but there's some along the anterior chest as well. And this was really affecting his self-esteem and his social interactions and causing him to withdraw quite a bit. And so he came to us seeing what we could do from a surgical standpoint.
as with the other conditions, there's a certain amount of dogma that we have to overcome within not only the medical community, but the community in general. The first for gynecomastia is that of sympathetic reassurance. And this is something that sounds nice, right? But it can be detrimental to these patients because they'll often be told, oh, don't worry about it, it's gonna go away. Don't worry about it, it's gonna go away. And true, it often goes away by age 17, but you have teenagers here in the, in the prime of their pubertal years in high school who are significantly impacted by their chest appearance and just being told that it's gonna go away, it's gonna go away, it's gonna go away and never have anybody talk to them about what their options are if it doesn't can be detrimental to their development. There's also a fat goes to the gym paradigm that is <clears throat> detrimental to certain patients uh, like symptomatic macromastia Gynecomastia can be associated with elevated BMI, but I'll show you in a minute that that is not necessarily mutually exclusive and that treating gynecomastia independent of BMI can still help certain individuals. In fact, that same group looked at the psychosocial impact of adolescent gynecomastia in a case control study a couple of years ago, and similar to the other adolescent breast conditions, <clears throat> there was a negative impact on psychosocial well-being across the board, again, independent of associated BMI, or the severity of disease. So as we see with our patient, who's a fairly minor level of gynecomastia, he still had a significant impact on his psychosocial development and his quality of life. Surgical approaches for gynecomastia can vary again, depending on anatomy. For more minor scales of gynecomastia, a periareolar approach where you make an incision along the inferior border of the nipple and remove the glandular tissue from behind the nipple can be enough. Sometimes we combine that with liposuction to address the fibro fatty component over the anterior chest. With a higher grade gynecomastia, grade three or grade four, again, these are ones with larger volumes of breast tissue, but also more significant skin excess and breast ptosis. A breast reduction type approach needs to be employed, which is similar to what we do for symptomatic macromastia. This is our three-month evaluation of our patient with uh, grade one gynecomastia. His anterior chest contour is much improved. Um, can't really see his incisions because they're around the nipple. His quality of life has dramatically improved, and he is a big uh, proponent of um, our group uh, and is very supportive of what we're doing and has been very uh, affected by his transformation. The last group of... <clears throat> Adolescent breast disorders specific uh, to the plastic surgical uh, approach that I want to talk about today is uh, gender dysphoria. Um, and this is an important topic, I think, not only uh, in the lay press and in our world, but also within the medical community, as we see more and more patients uh, coming to us, uh, coming to, to you as primary care providers and coming to uh, specialists complaining of um, gender incongruence and gender dysphoria. And I think it's important that we talk about that and, and highlight the ability for us as plastic surgeons to be able to interface with this patient population and, and help to take care of uh, these patients in a uh, holistic way. This is probably obvious to most of you, but I think it's important to focus on the lexicon and make sure that we're all using the right words. Gender incongruence simply means that the sex assigned at birth does not match the gender with which people identify. It's incongruent, it's not the same. Gender dysphoria is the distress condition that occurs as a result of gender incongruence. So not everybody that's gender incongruent is dysphoric and not anybody, everybody that's dysphoric is incongruent, but there's a group of people that uh, experience significant psychosocial impacts from gender dysphoria. And specific to our discussion today, there's also something called chest dysphoria, which is the dysphoric condition that results from unwanted breast development in the transmasculine population. So these are people who are sex assigned female at birth who identify with the male gender. And as I said, this is becoming more and more important because we're hearing about it more and we're understanding the uh, magnitude of need within this patient population. This is a recent uh, output from the CDC that identifies that almost 2% of high school students around the country, this is in the country, but it's even higher around the world, identify as transgender, and that uh, results in some significant psychosocial impact in this patient population, with about a quarter of them feeling unsafe at school. A lot of them are reported to be bullied. And this is, again, all transgender population, about a third have had some suicide attempt. I'll show you the numbers are even worse for transmasculine patients. 
the traditional dogma, as far as we have tradition uh, in this field so far, is that teenagers, again, are emotionally ill-equipped to deal with uh, the impacts of an operation. <clears throat> One of the more important things is that people will change their minds. And there are there is a group, to be fair, of people who are called detransitioners. And there's a great article from The Atlantic maybe five, six years ago that really goes in an in-depth discussion of this, and it's important to consider. But people use the concept that teenagers don't really know what they want, and if you address them surgically, you take away their option to detransition in the future. So a lot of people argue that you should not treat this condition with surgical intervention. And I even had attendings in plastic surgery training that were very vocal about the fact that uh, being transgender and having gender identity disorder is a psychiatric disease and should not be treated with surgery. These are all, again, examples of dogma that is out there, and I'm sure you each hear very different ones uh, that can negatively impact this patient population and unfairly exclude them from um, available care. Specific to plastic surgery, where most of the time uh, we deal in our clinic with um, gender-affirming top surgery and trans-masculine youth. So again, assigned sex female at birth, identify gender as male, Often they come to us looking for top surgery, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, but this is the mo most common uh, population that we see. Um, they have the highest prevalence of past suicide attempts among all youth of any gender identity, and almost half of all transmasculine youth have attempted suicide in the past, which is incredible. Masculinizing chest surgery or top surgery, which is where we come in, can reduce dysphoria um, by 10% by 10 times postoperatively, and it addresses chest dysphoria 100%. And I'll show you some recent data to support that. This is a representative example of someone in our clinic uh, who came to us, transmasculine individual, sex assigned female at birth with a significant amount of chest dysphoria from large uh, unwanted breast volume on the chest. And there are various surgical approaches uh, when looking at gender affirming top surgery or uh, gender affirming uh, chest reconstruction. Um, for smaller breasts and smaller chests with small amounts of skin excess, you can use similar approaches that you do with gynecomastia, which is a periareal or incision with or without liposuction. This is also called a keyhole approach where the incision is very small and can produce dramatic effects. And we've seen a lot of that in our clinic where we have great outcomes from small minimal incision um, mastectomies essentially to treat gender dysphoria and chest dysphoria. For patients with large uh, chest volumes or a lot of skin excess, the standard uh, approach is something called a double incision mastectomy, where you make an incision along the bottom and you actually take the nipple off and resize it and put it on as a free skin graft. This is probably the most common surgical approach that's seen uh, due to the fact that a lot of the patients that come in are larger chested and have larger skin excess. This is a uh, intraoperative picture of that last patient that we saw where we do a double incision mastectomy. We remove all of the breast tissue along the capsule, leaving only the skin and the subcutaneous fat. Take the nipples off, uh, resize them because the male nipple is differently sized and shaped than the female nipple, and also reposition them on the chest. The male nipples are more lateral than the female nipples typically. Um, and we do this as an outpatient procedure. Patients go home the same day. They come to us the next week to take drains out, to take dressings off of the nipples, and uh, to switch out their um, chest support. And then this is our patient postoperatively here. After about six months, uh, being critical, there's a little skin excess on the side, which I actually revised in a local procedure and um, took out the extra skin. But you can see extra. Um, definition along the anterior chest contour obviously the chest volume is removed and this particular patient's chest dysphoria uh, was uh, reversed by this operation and his gender dysphoria in general was dramatically improved this is a recent qualitative study that came out of a uh, uh, multi-institutional collaboration the most um, obvious one is with chop and they looked at the experience of chest dysphoria and surgery in the specific uh, transmasculine youth and adolescent population. 
as was the theme with all the previous adolescent breast disorders, there's a dearth of information about how this specifically affects teenagers. And just assuming that teenagers have the same experience as the adult corollaries, I think excludes a large portion of their experience and can prohibit them from getting care when they need it. This was a qualitative study of these specific uh, adolescent populations. And across the board, uh, all patients that were interviewed uh, cited chest surgery as critical to their gender affirmation. So we have chest dysphoria, which is directly addressed by top surgery or uh, gender affirming uh, chest reconstruction. But their gender dysphoria in, in total was dramatically, well, they cited chest surgery as key to addressing their overall gender dysphoria. Lack of insurance coverage and cost were the most commonly cited barriers to getting um, uh, gender affirming surgery and all patients reported complete resolution of their chest dysphoria postoperatively, which is fairly obvious. But I think the lack of insurance coverage and the cost uh, when we're looking at access to care and barriers is important. And there is a significant movement in certain parts of our country that seek to limit the ability for this specific population to achieve medical and surgical care. This is a website that you can go to. It's publicly available knowledge that lists all of the um, bills that are in legislation by state that are specifically targeted to restricting medical care for trans youth. The darker colors are uh, more bills, the lighter colors are fewer bills. Texas uh, brings home the uh, dubious distinction in a lot of ways, but certainly with this um, particular field where there's 41 bills in legislation specifically designed to restrict medical care and surgical care for trans youth. Connecticut is white. We have no bills in legislation dedicated to restricting medical or surgical care for trans individuals. There are two bills in legislation currently in Connecticut which are um, restricting trans activities. They're both uh, focused on sports restrictions and participation restrictions for trans youth. Here at Connecticut Children's, we have uh, partnered with our pediatric endocrinology group and uh, Dr. Pawani to uh, provide gender affirmation options for um, suitable candidates. Uh, we have seen this grow pretty quickly in our small clinic and have been able to address uh, a lot of the chest dysphoria and gender dysphoria among the adolescent population. So by providing this overview of adolescent breast disorders today, uh, my hope is that you can understand that adolescent breast conditions do have a real impact on teenagers and their quality of life, that this can persist uh, for years, but it can be addressed with certain surgical interventions when appropriate, and the benefits can persist long beyond uh, their postoperative recovery. Intervention alone, specifically surgical intervention, should not be delayed based on arbitrary dogma that certain individuals have to wait until they're 18 for some reason or that teenagers can't um, participate in their recovery. And it's also important to note that plastic surgeons do play an important role in adolescent breast care, and not only for patients that are surgical candidates, but also for patients that are not surgical candidates yet. And there's a significant interface between us and you as primary care providers to be able to deliver care to this patient population that is otherwise potentially excluded and otherwise potentially at risk. So I'd just like to thank you very much for allowing me the opportunity to talk about our work. I said at the beginning, I usually have a picture of our group here at the end. This is a collaborative effort between all of us in the plastic surgery division. We have uh, Glenda and Clarissa who are MAs and work behind the scenes. Uh, we have Lauren, who's our PA, Melissa uh, is our uh, APRN, Jen is our nurse, and Monique is our nurse practice manager. And I just wanted to thank all of them as well for helping to develop this program for adolescent breast care and helping to deliver care for uh, the patients that need it the most. So thank you very much for having me today. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has. Thank you very much, Dr. Hughes. Very informative lecture and um, some very um, emotional topics that you um, described and uh, talked about treatment for. We have a very um, insightful question from Dr. Nat. Can you talk about breastfeeding and breast reduction and how you provide anticipatory guidance on future feedings and loss of opportunity? As a hospitalist with a large, well newborn practice, I see many mothers who have different levels of understanding of the impact of breast reduction on breastfeeding. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. That's a great one and something that's uh, key to our discussions for these patients. 
there's lots of ways to do breast reductions, lots of approaches, lots of ways to preserve the nipple. And uh, regardless of the way that that is approached, I think the outcomes for breastfeeding are pretty much the same. And typically what I tell patients is that uh, postoperatively after breast reduction, about a third of women can breastfeed with no problem. A third of women can breastfeed, but might not be as productive as they would be and might need to supplement with formula. And that a third of women might have trouble breastfeeding altogether and need to exclusively formula feed. And that's based on old uh, retrospective uh, cross-sectional data that really has not been updated in a long time. And to be honest, I don't know how different that is from the general population that's non-operated. Um, I don't think anybody has good data to support that, but that's typically what we tell patients. And um, that's typically what we see in follow-up as well. Excellent. Um, Dr. Z uh, asked, can you comment on the risk of neoplastic changes in these conditions? The best, thanks for the question. The best data that we have are for um, incidental neoplasms in breast reduction specimens. Um, there is some data to, to evaluate that within the gynecomastic population, but the best and most frequently studied is in the uh, breast reduction specimen population. And it's very rare. Um, usually we say about 0.2% of all reduction mammoplasty specimens across the board have some degree of either uh, early stage cancer or atypia within the, within the reduction specimen. So it's, it's something we send all of our specimens to pathologists to look at. To be honest, when they look at it under the microscope, they don't look at everything. They, they what they call bread loaf the specimen where they, they cut it into pieces and look at representative samples. But uh, everybody gets analyzed in that way. And that uh, the best thing that we know is that it's about 0.2% of the time. Laura Pickett asks, what is the endocrine workup for a gynecomastia and when is it indicated? Higher severity or delayed age of onset? To be honest, working here, a lot of the endocrine workup has already been done, which is wonderful. Um, but typically, if it hasn't been done, I usually get baseline endocrine labs on every uh, teenager that comes to us with uh, persistent gynecomastia beyond a year with no identifiable cause. And so that means that there's no exogenous drug use, there's no testicular mass, there's nothing to support a clear indication for why they have gynecomastia, which again, most of the time is idiopathic. But in general, uh, if that's the case and we need an endocrine workup, I'll order uh, free thyroid levels, I'll order HCG, luteinizing hormone, uh, we'll order um, estradiol, free estradiol. And then if all of that is normal, um, I don't feel compelled to get an endocrine workup, and we can say that this is uh, idiopathic gynecomastia. If there's anything abnormal in the lab work, if there's any indication that there's a testicular involvement, then we'll typically refer them to endocrinology, obviously, if there's a lab work or urology, if there's a testicular lesion, uh, to rule out any exogenous sources or, or secondary causes for the gynecomastia. I do have a question. So it has been uh, thought that cannabis use can increase your risk of gynecomastia. Yeah. Are you seeing any increase in this now that it's yeah, getting legalized? Yeah, that's interesting. We should look at that. Um, I have not personally seen that, but I, I imagine that that would be uh, something that we'll probably start to see more often. <laughs> um, I love Dr. Moles's question. Thank you for this informative presentation on topics. I would imagine many of us have very limited experience. What is the most rewarding surgery you do re-adolescent breast care? And can you, you can define rewarding in any way you choose. Oh, um, that's a good question. I, you know, I will say that um, the breast reduction procedure, which is uh, not necessarily the most glorious thing we do, but it is a very effective operation. And that is a patient population that we see most frequently of all the adolescent breast conditions that we see. That's the most frequent one that we see and the one that we see the most quality of life benefit right away. As I mentioned, most of the time parents um, in the first pre-op visit, we'll talk about how much different their child is and how much more outgoing they are. Um, and that's a really great thing. And, and our group has really developed a nice system where Lauren and Melissa uh, are really champions for these girls from the very beginning and, and walk them through the whole pre-op and recovery course uh, very closely. And so they form a nice bond with them and get to know them very well and uh, really can appreciate the impact that this surgery offers them. Personally, even though that's a very rewarding thing, personally, I, I um, think that our um, gender dysphoric population is something that's extremely important and uh, something that's extremely rewarding for me. Um, just identifying the fact that this is such an at-risk population and a population that has been overlooked for so long is something that I'm happy to be able to participate in the care of and able, able to address some of the surgical needs that they have uh, that otherwise would not have been available to them. Thank you.
I would actually add on to that that I find that the obesity population, um, watching them walk through not only the surgeries that we do, um, having them do the weight loss, but then when we refer them to you and they have some of their um, body, uh, what do you call it, reshaping? Yeah, body contouring. Um, they come back much different people. Um, and I think it's been really amazing to see because we haven't had, you know, until you came, we really haven't had that continuum. Um, and it's added so much dimension to our program. Dr. Scherzer is asking, um, to what extent is there conflict with insurers for approval of adolescent breast surgery for conditions like gynecomastia and breast dysymmetry? Is a psychological evaluation a necessary component of getting such surgery approved? That's a good question. Thanks very much for asking that. Um, I've started already giving up trying to figure out the motivation behind insurance company coverages for certain things because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to me in a lot of ways. Um, the psychological evaluation is not necessarily a, a strict criteria for approval for most adolescent breast conditions with the exception of chest dysphoria and gender dysphoria. There's an organization called WPATH, which is essentially the worldwide uh, association of providers for transgender health, and they have set a list of uh, standards of care. Most of you probably know about this organization. Um, and in their standards of care for approval, uh, they list uh, psychiatric evaluation, and that's something that insurers have really held pretty strictly to, which I think is a reasonable thing for uh, trans uh, individuals and for gender-affirming mastectomy in this particular patient population. Um, the psychiatric evaluation is not required, technically, for the other um, breast conditions that we see for insurance approval. And the conflict of interest component is, um, I don't know what the motivation is behind that. We, I have had many, many peer-to-peers with uh, insurance companies to try to explain to them that, um, that it, kids do not need to wait until they're 18, even though that's what their sheet says. I've offered to send them <laughs> studies and, and quality of life data, which they don't like a whole lot, but I've offered to educate them to improve the way that they address um, approvals for teenagers. And it, it varies by insurance company too. Some insurances are, are good and they work with us quite well and others are fairly restrictive. Um, so I, I don't know exactly the motivation behind that. It does vary. And uh, I will say that we've, we've learned a lot in the past two years or so trying to navigate uh, approvals for adolescent breast conditions. And our office and our team have, uh, have continued to develop the ability to navigate those waters uh, as best as we can. Awesome. Will transmasculine individuals still have a risk of breast cancer with residual breast tissue, or is all breast tissue removed? Another good question. Um, Technically, they should not. And technically, if you do the mastectomy within um, uh, the plane between the, the breast tissue and the skin, you remove all of the breast tissue. And so technically, they do not have a risk of breast cancer in the future. And the um, postoperative surveillance for that is not well established, which is a, an interesting point. People this is a fairly uh, nascent field for plastic surgery, and, and there's no good recommendations for how to surveil uh, transmasculine individuals as they move into adulthood towards, you know, 40 for mammograms and things like that. Uh, so there's no good recommendation for that. But anatomically, um, if you see within the breast, the breast is, it's also called the corpus mammae, the body of the breast. There's a, there's a capsule around the breast tissue, and it's a thin white film. And if you stay along that capsule during your dissection, you know that below you is all breast tissue and above you is subcutaneous fat and skin. And if you remove the entire body of the breast, in theory, you're removing all of that breast tissue. And so the cancers that develop are not in the fat and skin, obviously they're in the breast parenchyma. And by removing that completely, you do not uh, put them at future risk for developing breast cancer. Um, we have time for a couple more questions. Any regrowth after breast reductions? And if so, what age group and when do you see this? Yeah, there is a concern for regrowth after breast reductions, and uh, it's typically seen later on in their 20s and 30s, usually after children and life and weight changes with life. Um, there is a recent study that just came out about the optimal timing for breast reductions, again from the Boston group, looking at uh, age after the onset of menses in teenagers. And if you delay a breast reduction until about three years after the onset of their period, then your risk of regrowth is a little bit less compared to if you intervene before. Um, and that probably has something to do with hormonal shifts and uh, subsequent pubertal development. Um, but that is certainly a risk. And so anecdotally, uh, if they're on the younger side, uh, we 
we always talk to patients about their ideal size, not that we specifically reduce to a certain size because you go to Victoria's Secret, you're one size and you go somewhere else, you're another size, but we get a sense in general about what size they're looking for. We're limited to some extent by the, we preserve the nipple on its own vascular supply and its own nerve supply. So we are limited to some extent by how small we can go, depending on how large they are in the beginning. And if they're on the younger scale of the teenage years, uh, the youngest we've done so far is, is 12. Uh, she had a different condition, but um, if they're on the younger side in the teenage years, it tend to go as small as we can within the, the realm of sizes that we're shooting for, anticipating that there's going to be growth and there's a lot of development left to do. Um, but on, on the adult side, I've also seen patients that have done revision reductions on um, in their 40s and 50s, not frequently, and it doesn't happen all the time, but there is a subset of patients who uh, you do see that typically after childbirth and after the uh, um, breastfeeding years within the 20s and 30s. Um, does breast augmentation affect breastfeeding? Breast augmentation can affect breastfeeding as well. Um, I don't think uh, people accurately describe how frequent they see problems with that, but I do know that uh, people who perform breast augmentation uh, will cite similar statistics, so about a third, a third, a third. With breast augmentation, it's a little bit different depending on where you put the implant. So the implant can be either um, pre-pectorally or above the muscle and below the gland or it can be below the muscle. Um, so there's two different places that you can put the implant, more or less. Um, and if you put the implant uh, below the muscle, uh, you don't disrupt a lot of the ducts and a lot of the, um, the connections within the breast parenchyma itself. So I think your risk of affecting breastfeeding is probably a little bit less than if you uh, put it above the muscle or behind the gland. Um, but it's a little bit unknown exactly. So I think most people will tell patients about a third, a third, a third. I'm going to combine Dr. Rader and Dr. McGilpin's questions. So if you have patients with gynecomastia that admit to marijuana use, do you still move forward with surgery? And likewise, if you have a patient with gynecomastia that's overweight, do you, make the, do you ask them to lose weight prior to proceeding with surgery? Both very good questions. Um, if I've yet to have a teenager admit to marijuana use, but maybe that's going to change now that it's legal. But um, if there is an identifiable source for their gynecomastia, meaning exogenous drug use or something else, we will address that first. So if they admit to heavy marijuana use and they have gynecomastia, then we will address that behavioral component first, suggest that they stop using marijuana, come back to us, and, and we'll follow them for a little while to see if that addresses the source of their gynecomastia. The BMI question is really interesting. Um, those studies that I showed uh, demonstrated that the quality of life is affected regardless and independent of BMI. So they did logistic regressions for their data and suggest that controlling for the co-founder of BMI within gynecomastia, that independent of BMI, you see both an impact of the condition on psychosocial quality of life and a benefit from surgical intervention on quality of life. And that's typically the uh, I, the uh, sympathetic reassurance or the benign neglect dogma of that is that you tell patients to lose weight and things are going to get better. If they're morbidly obese and there's other um, confounding factors, then typically we'll start with a recommendation of weight loss um, and follow them back. Ideally, they achieve at or near a goal weight, similar to our body contouring patients, at or near a goal weight and a stable weight for about six months. Um, so if they're, if they're markedly obese and um, there's a significant fibro fatty component, obviously, to the chest, then usually we'll start with that. But it's not a deference altogether because we do know that intervention, regardless of obesity status, can produce significant benefits. So in our practice, both for breast reduction and for gynecomastia, BMI is not an exclusion criteria. It is something to consider, and it does make surgical intervention more difficult with some increased complication profiles. But that's an honest discussion that you have with your patients and say, look, you know, this is, um, it would be great if you lost weight beforehand so we could uh, maximize your output. And I always tell people that I want to set them up for success 10 years down the road rather than next year. And so it might be worthwhile to lose some weight to get closer to your goal weight and then address your conditions. But everybody's different. And if their gynecomastia is significantly impacting their quality of life, if they're a social uh, recluse and don't go out and it's really uh, become problematic for them, then we talk about their expectations and their goals and say that, you know, this might not be the most ideal situation, but we can address your 
breast hypertrophy through various situations. It's not going to be perfect, but it might uh, help to improve your quality of life. And it's a shared decision-making uh, conversation that we have between uh, patients and their families. Thank you. And thank you for the website on breastfeeding after reduction. It has been posted um, so that you guys can access it. One last question. Dr. Tori says, thank you for this wonderful presentation. How important is early initiation of uh, medical or hormonal treatment for patients pre or early in breast development um, for gender dysphoria, chest dysphoria, if, uh, in preventing the need for surgery? That's a great question. Um, that's a whole other uh, series of controversies and, and when to initiate medical therapy. Um, I will say that we don't typically make a lot of those clinical decisions when they come to, to us. Um, a lot of these patients have already been through um, discussions regarding initiation of medical therapy for gender dysphoria. There's a lot of controversy around the um, appropriate time to do that. And uh, the endocrinology group here and Dr. Pawani um, really have excellent conversations with patients uh, regarding that. So I, I would, the short answer is I would defer to, to them and to their discussion and their shared decision-making with respect to initiation of medical therapy. Typically when we see them, um, they have already been through that discussion. I will say that specific to gender uh, dysphoria and chest dysphoria for um, gender affirming mastectomy or chest reconstruction, being on hormone therapy is not an absolute requirement. Um, if you are dealing with trans feminine individuals, so individuals that are assigned birth male at assigned male assigned sex male at birth and identify as a female, they do need to be on hormone therapy for two years prior to augmentation because you do see a dramatic amount of breast change with uh, hormone therapy in that um, direction. For transmasculine males who are on uh, testosterone, you don't see a whole lot of breast changes with respect to size and breast development because often when they come to us, that's already happened. So uh, there's no strict requirement for hormone therapy for transmasculine individuals and gender affirming mastectomy. Anecdotally, again, just from my own practice in my own hands, if they've started hormone therapy already, uh, by the time we see them, I typically like to have them on it for about a year uh, before doing uh, chest reconstruction, just to make sure that whatever change we see has sort of been established and standard um, before you go intervening and trying to hit a moving target in some ways. So typically I like to wait about a year if they're already on hormone therapy, but it's not a requirement. Um, actually, two more questions just came in. How do you deal with parental involvement and consent for care? For the trans, I'm assuming you're asking for, for the trans I think for overall, or? for any of the breast reductions, augmentation, okay. anything. It seems like it's general. Yeah, most of the time we've been fairly fortunate that it is sort of a shared discussion between um, patients and their families. Um, often, um, girls come in with their mothers, although it doesn't have to be their mothers, but often it's with their mothers who um, really understand what a lot of these girls are going through, thinking specifically of the symptomatic macromastia or the congenital asymmetry population. And so we haven't had any significant uh, discrepancy between what our patients are seeking and what the parents want, um, which has been a fortunate situation. I suppose if there was a significant um, discrepancy there, they probably wouldn't be there in the first place, but if they did happen to show up, then um, you know we'd have to have a more in-depth discussion and, and probably lay out uh, a lot of the framework that we talked about today to help explain the reasons why or why not we should proceed. Um, and that, again, uh, to highlight the work of our group and our collaborative effort with Melissa and Lauren, they really form a good bond with these girls um, initially, and they're able to participate in that discussion with patients and their families to um, sort of highlight a lot of the, the things that would otherwise cause problems as you move forward with a surgical decision-making discussion. Um, the trans population in particular, um, the standards of care for surgical intervention suggest that the, the requirements are that the patients are at the age of majority in the country. And what that means is really uh, variable. And again, as we've seen for a lot of conditions that uh, third-party insurers require 18 years old for the most part. Um, that's not strict, but that tends to be what a lot of people say. However, um, what we've seen and what's been uh, rewarding to see with our trans population, uh, and again, we're pretty fortunate, is that they have all come in so far with very supportive family involvement and very um, 
proactive families who often come to us with uh, letters already written and uh, things already laid out so that they can submit uh, to insurance companies, not only a uh, letter from the therapist, a letter from um, the endocrinology group, but also from the parents. And if they're less than 18 um, and you have parental support, uh, then um, that's usually uh, enough from a criteria standpoint to be able to approve surgery from a third party payer. And it's certainly um, good to see from a practitioner standpoint to see that uh, a lot of these patients have support within their families. It's not always the case. And certainly where I trained, um, a lot of these individuals came in by themselves um, and it was uh, it can be a very dicey environment when they don't have uh, parental support and again that's probably why we see that almost 50 percent of transmasculine youth um, do have a suicide attempt prior um, so it's it's an important and vulnerable population to consider um, but fortunately we, we've been able to see almost across the board so far that uh, people are very supportive of their uh, children Excellent. And then to round it out, where do most of your referrals come from? And then finally, how do you refer to your group? Our referrals come from all across the board, uh, local community um, practitioners, um, people within the hospital. As Dr. Fink mentioned, we get some <laughs> referrals from our pediatric surgical colleagues for uh, wound care and um, island idols <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. Um, the uh, the trans population, uh, similarly, not to only talk about that, but they come from internal. Um, they also come from externally. There are, you know, we're a pretty small state, and there are certainly other providers doing uh, trans health uh, in the state of Connecticut with respect to surgery. I will say that we see a lot of patients who have um, been navigating the Southern Connecticut health system and have had trouble accessing certain aspects of uh, trans health, and so we see referrals from down there. Um, we also see referrals from, from within and from the local community. We see referrals from Western Mass where there's been some difficulty getting into care. The recurrent theme within this population is that they're sort of looking for a home and they often don't have uh, a, a supportive system to be able to address all of their surgical care needs. Um, referring to our group, um, internally just through a referral through Epic, we're a pretty small group, but we're, we are um, we have uh, a very dedicated uh, staff, and so uh, our phone number is easily accessible. It's 545-9360, uh, uh, option number one, um, and you'll get either Clarissa or Glenda or anybody who's around when the phone is ringing to, to answer the referral, and um, we're pretty good about uh, getting people in fairly quickly. We have uh, capability down in Fairfield and also here in Hartford at the moment, um, so if you have any questions, I'm accessible through Volt or through um, email, all of us are, and uh, it should be a pretty straightforward referral process. Thank you very much, Dr. Hughes, for this informative presentation. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. We had over 150 participants on this CME event, and I want to wish you uh, all a very happy Tuesday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.